This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, two schools lost their charters and one's fate will be determined today at an Orleans Parish School Board meeting. We'll also hear about the latest COVID numbers in schools. The city of New Orleans has dismissed a formal contract protest lodged by internet provider Cox Communications when they lost out on a bid for the proposed Smart Cities project. A new disciplinary sanctions matrix meant to provide a transparent rubric for punishment throughout the Louisiana prison system was formally adopted earlier this year, but despite the new policies, many prisoners are still facing indefinite lockdowns. And there's a new sheriff in town. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hey, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Good morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor Charles Maldonado is also here. Hey, Charles. Good morning. So, Marta, we're up first with you in education. The Orleans Parish School Board is meeting today. We expect them to complete the annual charter school renewal or the closure process. Most of the work's already done. There's one school that, as of we are, as of the time we're speaking right now, is still waiting to find out about its fate. Who is that and what's happening? Yeah, so Dr. Martin Luther King Charter School is still waiting to find out if their charter will be renewed. What I will note here is that uh, this used to always take place in December, so this is actually kind of their historic timeline to tell charters in December, but the district has been moving that process up to November which is actually really nice for families and anyone who's, you know, thinking about re-enrolling in school. So just, just one more to get through, which is MLK. Um, and, you know, they're, they're a school with a pr- pretty big historic presence in the city. Um, one of the first to reopen after Katrina. They're in the Lower Ninth Ward. Uh, their longtime founder and principal, Doris Hicks, um, you know, is a major member of the community, and so are many other people who work at that school. But They've also, um, you know, had some controversies in the past. So I think that's why we find ourselves here today. Right. So talk about wh- what the status is and, and why this renewal is in question. Right. So right now it appears that they're working through two different issues at the school. One was that they had got a special education warning. Um, the school was not providing proper services to students. It's unclear how many services or how many students had affected. Um, and this is the New Orleans Public School District that has written this warning to the school. Um, they also said that the district was failed to consider external special education evaluations and that, you know, that's something that their school is required to do. Um, and then separately, they said that the school had not properly c- completed background checks, which is something that we're seeing pop up in a number of areas right now. I think this is the fourth school this year that has been flagged for that and, you know, not something we've really seen in the past. And of course, that all follows the, the followed at James Singleton Charter School, where um, it was alleged that the, an employee falsified background checks. Correct me if I'm wrong, Marta, the, the special education issue is by far the more serious one. And it also comes at a sort of pivotal time uh, for the school district because it's separately trying to exit a uh, six-year-old consent, federal consent decree over special education in the city. Right, right. It is definitely the more serious one. Um, and I think they are trying to, you know, put their foot down on this a little bit more because they do want to be out of that consent decree. I mean, at the same time, if you look at schools across the city, there are more than a dozen that are still in um, what's called a corrective action plan from the state for special education um, uh, shortcomings. 
Right, right, right. And so, but, and, and then on the background check issue, I think it's, you know, it's also probably important to emphasize that these other warnings we're seeing coming about background checks are not nearly at the same level as what was allegedly going on on at Singleton, which was, again, allegedly um, the forging of background checks, which is a criminal offense. That's what was happening at Singleton. But it does appear, and I don't know if they've actually spoken to this in, the, in meetings or to you or anything, it does appear that this thing at Singleton has, has set off a round of, of new scrutiny into how schools are conducting background checks, which is something we would, you know, over the years we'd occasionally see um, the, the district pipe up about, but this, this seems to be a little bit different now. Right. And I think we saw it a lot um, under the recovery school district and when schools were kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say much more independent because they're still independent, but, you know, kind of floating out there more under the RSD's oversight than this more, um, what I would say today is a little more cohesive of what you could call a district. So it is interesting to see that the district's now paying, I would say, a lot more attention to these background checks, or, or at least they're writing down these findings when they find them. Maybe they were finding them before and not actually flagging schools for them. I would be very surprised if they decided to close King. That would be a pretty that would be a pretty big political decision. One interesting thing I want to note is I think LPSB's always had a kind of a special relationship with this school. Um, it was the first school to return from the recovery school district to the Orleans Parish School Board. And it was basically because King was um, did not like how the recovery school district was treating them. The RST wanted them to do something that they didn't want to do. And they were just like, all right, then we'll just go back to OPSB. And OPSB was like elated to have mm. a school return because it was the first school to return to their jurisdiction. So they've, they've always had an interesting relationship. So the renewal process, they're given an opportunity to work with the district to correct the issues as the renewal process is under underway? Kind of yes and no. I mean, they, the district does these yearly checks, like they do site checks at the school every year. Um, you know, we've written about these before. Some They're somewhat... Um, surface level site checks, you know, there's like 13, 15 items. And it's like, do you have, you know, the, the labor poster posted in the school? Do you have translation service poster posted in the school? Which, you know, those, those types of things, while very important, seem, you know, pretty surface level when it comes to like, did you do your background checks properly? Are you providing special education services? So they do those um, checks earlier in the year before they kind of get to this point where they recommend renewal or not, or not renewing the contract. Sometimes they offer like a, a midway renewal where they'll give you a lower number of years if they wanted to take some corrective action over that time period. Okay, tell us what's going on with COVID. Yeah, so we're, things appear to be holding steady case-wise in the district. Uh, we have 30 cases reported this week and although quarantines went up a little bit, we had 263 people quarantining. And what I will say I'm a little disappointed about personally is that that's gonna be our last COVID update from the district until January 10th. Ooh. So I think with the Omicron variant coming into the community right now, which we're seeing um, a lot, we're seeing numbers go up, um, especially at Tulane University, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I think it's fairly disappointing that we're not going to see any new numbers from the district until well after students have returned from break. And Tulane made a big announcement. Tulane reverted to remote learning or gave students the option to revert to remote learning as well as reinstated their mask mandate. Um, their cases just have gone up. I'm looking at the chart right now exponentially in the last week. If you look over the last month of testing, essentially their caseloads were, you know, one, maybe two a day, maybe three. And then on the seventh, it 
everything just started ramping up, you know, 14 cases, then 37 cases, then, and something that our old healthcare reporter, Philip Kiefer pointed out to me is that Tulane is responsible for the most number of confirmed or probable Omicron cases in the state that have been sequenced thus far. Right, which is probably, you know, it, it seems to be the epicenter of Omicron, but, you know, I, I would guess in reality, the fact that they're finding so much of it um, at Tulane has a lot to do with the amount of testing Tulane is doing. Tulane is doing more testing per capita than, you know, and basically anywhere else in the state, as far as I know. So, yeah, Tulane, obviously, you know, with people with a lot of people living in quote close quarters, there's, you know, there's a lot there's potentially more of a, a, a risk for transmission at a place like that. But in many ways, at the same time, it can be seen as as sort of a bellwether for where everybody else is going, just because they really are doing so much testing there. They're absolutely leading on testing, and and we often see what's reflected at Tulane reflected in the city a few weeks later. And this week, Governor Edwards made a big announcement about statewide vaccine mandate. He did. So there was a a, a bit of a a legislative showcase the other week where the... um, House um, Health Committee held an hours-long hearing about whether or not the COVID-19 vaccine should be added to the schedule of immunizations that children are required to get to attend school. Um, And what the health department had proposed was that COVID-19 be added to this list. You know, there's plenty of other vaccines required, measles, mumps, rubella, those types of shots. Um, And the Republican lawmakers held held this hours-long hearing where they essentially they did not want that to happen, right? That, that they just think this is a ridiculous notion that this would be added. But the big caveat here is that the parent choice opt-out options in Louisiana are extremely broad. You can opt out for medical reasons, religious reasons. You can even opt out for a philosophical reason. So as far as this is a requirement, it's not essentially much of one. Um, and then this week, Governor Edwards announced that he was going to override that House committee's vote and go ahead and add COVID-19 to the schedule of immunizations. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to see that that vote as, as anything else than, you know, political theater and, um, you know, a chance for, frankly, for Jeff Landry, who's definitely running for governor to show off, um, you know, his conservative credentials in a, in a recorded meeting. All right. Well, it's going to be an interesting year. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. A couple of short updates from the education desk. Superintendent Lewis recommended Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Charter School receive a three-year contingent charter renewal contract. And also, city and district leaders announced that vaccinations or a negative test would be required for children ages five and older in NOLA public schools by February 1. Mayor LaToya Cantrell also announced a new rule requiring children ages 5 to 11 have to show proof of vaccination or a negative test to enter restaurants and other businesses, just as those older than 12 are required to now. Beginning in February, they will have to show proof of two doses. Michael, up next with you, we talked about the Smart Cities Project and the RFP that the city sent out a couple of weeks ago, I think, and um, Cox Communications uh, levied a protest, a formal protest against the um, RFP process because they were just, they were um, not chosen. And that protest has now been dismissed. Can you remind everyone about the contract and, and what the whole process was? 
Yeah, so you know, we're, we're talking about the city's smart, uh, smart cities project here. And, and just a quick background, smart cities is kind of this growing industry term, this kind of some mix between an industry and a, and a government philosophy um, that at its broadest level advocates for replacing traditional city infrastructure with infrastructure that's connected to the internet. And, you know, again, we're talking broadly here, but that allows two things. It allows uh, your infrastructure to collect more data. So, for example, um, you know, cameras at, at traffic uh, signals that can pick up, you know, what the flow of traffic is and at what times of day, you know, roads are being used the most. Um, and then on the other side of it, it can transmit all that data to the city. So if you, if you have, quote unquote, smart streetlights, um, they may be able to notify you if a bulb goes out um, without actually having to send someone to go check whether all the light bulbs are still working. So, you know, that, that's broadly what we're talking about when we're, when we're talking about smart cities. The city had put out a um, request for proposals for a smart city contract and ended up choosing, um, you know, a, a proposal from a consortium called Smart and Connected NOLA. And that's basically made up of a few different companies, um, you know, uh, Two of the most important ones to keep in mind are Qualcomm and another firm called JLC Infrastructure. It's a pretty massive proposal. We're talking about a multi-million dollar proposal that would get this consortium involved with several different city um, uh, uh, operations. So the first step of this plan would be creating a quote-unquote city-directed internet service um, that could do two things. It would connect to all the city-owned infrastructure, and it would also allow the city to offer subscriptions to that service as a, as a commercial subscription service. So, um, you know, getting residents and businesses to switch their accounts from Cox and AT&T um, to this new, again, city-directed service. Then the second part of it is thousands and thousands of, of, you know, what we just talked about, these smart city devices around the city. So it calls for 3,000 um, smart street lights, uh, hundreds of uh, smart traffic signals, um, and dozens of Wi-Fi kiosks. And, and all of those would, would serve some different purpose, but um, you know, kind of at the forefront for uh, privacy advocates and, and some city council members is that all of those would be embedded with cameras um, and other sensors that would be collecting massive amounts of data you know, in the last time we talked about this, you know, we kind of got a lot deeper into what some of the more specific privacy concerns um, were, and, and I won't get as in-depth on those. But the broadest, you know, concerns here is that the, these cameras and sensors will be picking up massive data sets from residents and visitors, um, and that data will go to the city not only for its own use, but it, it, the plan is also to sell that data to private companies in order to subsidize this whole plan. And, and, you know, make it, quote unquote, cost neutral to the city, um, something that's uh, whether it's actually cost neutral is a little bit unclear. But but the proposal broadly says the city shouldn't have to spend a lot more money on this. OK, so Cox, who stands to lose a lot of business if the C, if the city goes with someone else, they lodged a formal complaint. Explain why. Yeah, and you know, you obviously hit on an important point to acknowledge off the bat, which is that Cox is not an unbiased, you know, actor here. They they have huge incentive to to you know get this process reversed um, because they scored second place. So if they were successful 
in, in getting this award dismissed, they would automatically inherit the bid. So not only would they get this business, but you know, like I said, the part of the proposal that they did choose is creating a new internet service to compete directly with Cox, right. which obviously is not something they want. Right. Nonetheless, their protest does bring up several significant and very interesting points um, about how the proposal came together. Um, so again, at its broadest level, what the complaint alleges is that the city worked with a quote unquote pro bono consultant to help write the request for proposals. But that pro, that pro, that pro bono consultant didn't charge the city for its services. However, it is partners with two of the firms that made up the winning consortium, the one that submitted the winning proposal. So the allegation is basically that Ignite Cities came in, you know, helped put together a proposal that you know the, the smart and connected NOLA team would have a leg up on, and you know the city says that you know that there isn't a conflict of interest here, there isn't any public bid law violation because number one, it doesn't have a formal contract with Ignite Cities, and number two, it's not a formal member of the smart and connected NOLA team. You know, in their response, they haven't fully explained why Ignite Cities' previous relationship with two of the primary contractors in this consortium, why that, you know, isn't a factor here. Um, you know, they also haven't really addressed what Ignite City's interest in this whole process was. You know, they've told us that they gave advice for free, um, but, you know, it's not a nonprofit. This isn't a foundation we're talking about. It's a for-profit consultancy firm. And, you know, they're obviously working for someone and have some financial interest in this, um, but, you know, that that isn't entirely clear um, at the moment. So, you know, th that that's broadly uh, what the allegations are, um, you know, along with Ignite City's role in, in helping craft the RFP. Um, we've also seen a couple emails where the city sent Ignite City's advanced copies of the RFP before it was released to the public. Now, we don't know for sure whether Ignite Cities gave that information to their partner companies that were applying for this proposal. However, you know, it's not just their role in crafting the RFP. It's it's their, you know, also their early access to the documents before anyone else got a look at them. The the whole point of having an RFP process, which, you know, is in the city charter, is to ensure fair competition between bidders. Um, and if one of the potential bidders had early access to the RFP, had several weeks on any other potential bidder to see exactly what the city is looking for. And had a hand um, in drafting it. What's that? And had a hand in drafting it. Yeah, and, and well, I, I don't know if the bidders had a hand in drafting it, but the, if someone connected to the bidders had a hand in drafting it. But, but you know, the potential that they were in, that, that, that they had early access to this, you know, in, in drafting it and seeing it, uh, you know, it, it, it brings the whole process into question. And, and also, you know, just to address the other point, the, the response from the city that, you know, we're not paying this guy, so case closed, just seems, the, the, the nicest word is incomplete. Because, you know, yeah, as Michael pointed out, this is, this is a business. I mean, this is, this, is some, this is a business that is going all over the country and advertising itself as offering 100% free consulting services to cities. So doesn't that, you know, raise the question, how is this business operating as a business if it's offering all of its services for free? 
Right. Um, you know, apparently that was not a question that the city was interested in looking into. I, I mean, at least it seems that way. And, and I'll add that not only does Ignite Cities have a formal partnership with Qualcomm and JLC, but if you look at how they've described that partnership online, it, it seems to match up with exactly what happened in New Orleans. So, you know, again, the exact details of their partnership are not entirely available to us. I'm not aware of any contract that exists between them. You know, we really have to rely on PR releases and industry um, coverage. So, you know, we don't have an exact view of what the partnership is, but broadly how it's described is that Ignite City specializes in creating connections with city officials. Qualcomm, working with city officials specifically to promote and develop smart cities projects, um, projects that can then be filled with Qualcomm technology and funded by JLC infrastructure capital. So what happened in New Orleans, not only do these people have a partnership, but it seems to align pretty closely with the strategy they've described. I, I feel like a lot of, Charles, when you said that it's about incomplete about this relationship, like reading Jonathan Rhodes' responses, he's the city's utility office director, right? Yeah. His response is that, you know, I would appreciate your insight, like coming to them for advice very much seemed like they had a very friendly relationship with this middleman consultant. I mean, yeah, and, 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 questions. <laughs> for sure. And, and the relationship with Ignite Cities and the utilities office actually goes beyond just this one project. Ignite Cities has now worked on three projects in the last couple of years, you know, not officially, not under contract but they have consulted on three different projects already. And like Marta said, you know, I have thousands of pages of emails from Rhodes that I've read through and, and he does seem to have a fairly friendly, familiar relationship uh, with this consultant. And, and so, you know, again, I think this is an important thing to watch in this project, but, you know, like I just said, they're involved in, in a few different projects now. Um, you know, they've kind of got their foot in the door with high level city officials. Um, from the mayor to our chief information officer to our, you know, director of the, the office of utilities. So, so it's something to watch for sure. Um, you know, they also do argue that, you know, when they were developing this smart cities project that they consulted with a number of, of, you know, industry experts, you know, they even point out that they met with Cox about this as well in 2020, um, you know, basically, I guess, trying to argue that it wasn't just Ignite Cities that had a leg up on this, that they talked to a lot of companies about their interest to create a partnership in a smart cities project. Mm. Um, so, you know, but yeah, I mean, but did, did, I mean, that was a year ago. That was more than a year ago. Was an RFP in process? Did Cox see the RFP the way that Ignite Cities got to see the RFP? Were they right. consulted directly on the language of the RFP the way that Ignite, Ignite Cities was? Exactly. I, I, yeah. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying Poor Cox Cable, obviously, they're doing fine. They're the only cable service in the city, the only ca in cable internet service in the city. You know, the fate of Cox Cable to me is kind of beside the point. It's that it's that this process just raises all kinds of questions about a contract that will essentially result in creating an entirely new utility and one that will have, um, and that one that will have, you know, sort of unprecedented private access to all kinds of all kinds of data on residents and visitors and everybody else in the city you know with frankly a an rfp response 
that itself leaves a lot of unanswered questions about how they're going to use the data, whether they're going to sell the data, and you know all sorts of other things. And, and I'll bring up one other reason why it's important, and that's because when we're talking about a project like this, we're talking about a company that we're talking about a, a group of companies that's approaching a city with a project where they say the city won't have to spend any extra money, but it'll get all this extra infrastructure, it'll get all these improved services. Um, and the way that they plan to do that is by monetizing city services that have typically not been monetized, right? Mm. You know, adding sensors to traffic cameras that will pick up valuable data that they will then sell, right? So it's, it's convincing the city to, to add monetization to city services, and, and, and that's how they'll pay for this stuff. And I think that that is going to be something that we're going to see more and more of in this kind of, you know, smart city space, um, you know, that, that will be attractive to cities that are working with strained budgets. What happens next? So there's like an official protest process that the city has when it comes to disputes like these. That process has kind of played out. You know, the city has dismissed it and said that, you know, the, the arguments lack merit. So Cox's next move, if it did want to continue pursuing this, would be to bring it to, to uh, civil district court um, and, 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 you know, challenge the, the award in that arena. We haven't seen them do that yet. I've been checking, you know, court records and court filings. I haven't seen them do it yet. Um, but I don't. I think either way, whether or not Cox continues to to oppose it themselves, I don't think that this is the end of this. I think that you know we, we, we've written this in the article, but you know part of the the proposal that that's under consideration it calls for a 15 year contract basically, um, and, and and any contract that's you know that long, any multi year contract like that needs to be approved by the city council. Now, where it gets interesting is that. Both the city council and Mayor Cantrell, towards the beginning of the pandemic, both kind of started in initiatives to, to start looking into public Wi-Fi, um, you know, looking into ways um, to get, you know, Wi-Fi to those people who can't afford it, to close what what's called the digital divide. And now the city council was kind of working on its own track. And then Cantrell kind of came in with this project, um, this smart cities, you know, broadband project. Um, and that, that's kind of taken the place of what the city council was working on. And, and we know that there are city council members that are already, you know, have concerns about this project already on the basis of, of, of privacy matters um, and, and, and on whether this proposal is actually, as, you know, fleshed out as, as they claim it to be. And also city council members that are worried that this plan doesn't seem to clearly solve for, you know, what, what a lot of officials say is the primary issue here, which is closing that digital divide. Mm. Um, you know, the plan does not clearly lay out why or how it will get internet to low income customers. Mm. Um, you know, instead of a clear plan to do that, basically what they proposed is a revenue sharing agreement with the city where the city will get a cut of the money made off of selling, you know, data collected with these new new devices and subscription costs, you know, for customers that switch over to this new city directed service. After that, the city could use that money for whatever it wanted. One, you know, option would be to use that to subsidize internet services for low income customers. So that's the way that this plan kind of proposes meeting that, you know, goal, but it's not a definite, you know, concrete part of the plan. So I think that you'll see city council members um, kind of challenging that issue as well. So, you know, I, 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 I'm not sure um, it, this could be the end of it. Maybe, um, you know, there couldn't, it's possible there's not a lot of public controversy after this, but I don't know if the council is going to simply, you know, pass this thing through without bringing up, you know, objections. All right, Michael, this is a huge story. Thank you so much. Thank you.
You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Karen Gadbois, the co-founder and executive director of The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. As an advocate for openness, we provide readers with the source documents used in our reporting, inviting them to check and challenge our work or to build on it through their own research. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at thelensnola.org slash donate. Thank you. Nick, up next in criminal justice, this year, Louisiana formally adopted a new disciplinary matrix in the prison system. The Lens and Intercept partnered together on a story. Can you explain how the partnership started and then give us a background on this matrix, the new matrix that was adopted? Sure. So we really started reporting on the disciplinary uh, the disciplinary policies at, in Louisiana prisons. I think in February, we learned that, that a number of, of prisoners at Angola had gone on a hunger strike um, to protest being held in solitary confinement past when they felt they should be based on these disciplinary sanctions they were getting. Um, following some of that reporting, uh, I got in touch with another reporter. He, he called me and said he had been in touch with um, a number of, of prisoners at Angola and was interested in sort of fleshing out what was going on there and throughout the system. So that was kind of how our partnership got started. And then we, um, you know, brought the story to the Intercept thinking it had some bigger, maybe national interest. And, you know, that, that was nearly a year ago now that, that we started working on it. So it's been a long time coming. This disciplinary matrix, like I say, was brought to my attention when I first started reporting on this hunger strike and a number of the prisoners who said they were being held in solitary confinement indefinitely were blaming what they called the matrix. At the time, it wasn't entirely clear to me what they were talking about. But in early 2020, Angola in particular, this had been going on at other prisons prior to that, but Angola adopted this pilot program of a disciplinary sanctions matrix that was supposed to provide uh, specific sanctions for uh, disciplinary infractions within the prison. So contraband, you know, disobedience, things like this. Prior to the matrix, the prison really sort of had no uniform way of punishing prisoners um, behind the wall. So it was totally discretionary. There were people were getting, you know, sort of vastly different punishments for, for, um, the same infractions and could also be left there indefinitely. The prison system at some point after getting, I think, some scrutiny from both the federal government and from, from the press wanted to decided they wanted to reduce their use of solitary confinement as a punishment. And I should say at the time, Louisiana prisons were, were using solitary confinement at much, much higher rates than, than almost anywhere else in the country. Um, you know, I think four times the national average of people being held in solitary confinement in their prisons. What they did was they partnered with this uh, criminal justice reform organization, uh, the Bear Institute of Justice, to basically reform their disciplinary policies and reform their use of solitary confinement. 
and this disciplinary matrix was was one portion of that and it, like i say it was really supposed to provide this clear rubric for punishment within the, within the prison. You know, what they did makes a lot of sense and sort of sort of wonder why, nothing against Vera here, I mean, as I said, what they did makes a lot of sense, but sort of what makes you wonder why an outside organization was required for something like this, because they, they, they came in and they said, we want to reduce solitary. Well, a good way to do that is to put a cap on the amount of time people can spend in solitary and, and to set specific limits for specific types of infractions rather than just throwing people into solitary for, you know, whatever reason for however long. Um, and that's, you know, at, 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 in, at, at the most simplistic level is what is what the matrix was supposed to do. It was supposed to it was supposed to create parameters, create limits by just defining how discipline is supposed to work rather than just having it be arbitrary. Sort of like sentencing guidelines almost. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So, uh, how how is it working? Well, I mean, it was you know it, it was striking to learn that that the very thing that, that these prisoners were complaining about you know complaining is a is sort of maybe not quite the right word. These were people being held you know in their cells for twenty three hours a day in conditions that they said they weren't getting medical and mental health care. They were it would get up over a hundred degrees in their cells. These are really bad conditions, and there's been a lot of documentation over the, you know, on the effects of solitary confinement and these, the effects on, on people's mental health and, and, and well-being, and they're very serious. So when they were saying, you know, this is because of the matrix, and then to learn that that the matrix was this reform policy that was actually supposed to reduce the exact thing that they were complaining about, right? It was surprising, um, but all the information we had. Early on was anecdotal, you know, these were guys saying, look, my disciplinary sentence was two weeks and I've been here for several months. Or, you know, my disciplinary sentence was a few months and I've been here for a year. So that seemed like a real problem uh, when, when you compare it to the goals of, of what this reform was supposed to do. So that was really the big question. The piece was, was to what extent is this um, an issue throughout the system and to what extent are, are these, you know, maybe just isolated incidents. You know, part of this partnership between Vera and the Department of Corrections was that the Department of Corrections was supposed to provide data basically showing that their reform policies were actually reducing the use of people in solitary. We spent a long time trying to get that data and we eventually did. The problem was that the DOC did not collect for the vast majority of the the prisons and only for a very short period of time in, in the two prisons they did collect data. But what we found really supported these what, what these prisoners were saying. But yeah, so the, the numbers we got from, from Angola between January and October of 2020 basically showed that nearly half of the people being held in solitary confinement were being held there past their disciplinary sentences. So for half the people in solitary confinement, this matrix basically meant nothing. They, they were being held there, you know, functionally indefinitely. Um, so that, like I say, really, really supported these, the claims. And then we also found that, that at Raymond Laborde, another um, prison, nearly three-fourths of the prisoners were being held in solitary for nonviolent offenses. I should note that when, you know, when this matrix was developed with Vera, Vera expressed concerns right away about these exact issues. One, that there were still kind of minor offenses that that 
could result in someone being put in solitary confinement. They were concerned that people were going to be held there past their disciplinary sentences. And they're also concerned about there's there's another type of when someone gets sentenced to a dis for a disciplinary infraction, they get sent to disciplinary segregation. But there's another type of segregation that's exactly the same, but it's called preventative segregation. And that's used not in response to a specific disciplinary infraction, but when the prison determines that you are a, a threat to public safety um, or the well-being of, of you know, prison staff and, and other uh, incarcerated people. So the prison has options to sort of get around these, uh, these guidelines that it's put in place for itself. Any reform program is only as good as the agency's willingness to actually implement it, especially when you're working with, with a group that has no regulatory power over you. And the, in fact, the only, the only power that they do have over you is the ability to report on your success or failure, except that the prison, except that the prison system wasn't giving them the data they needed to do that. Hmm. And, and it's striking when you look into some of the other programs that Vera got involved with around the country, particularly Washington state, um, the difference is, is just night and day. The reports from Washington state are like three or four times as long. They're chock full of data across the system. They're showing real reductions in, in the use of solitary confinement. I believe they even eliminated one form of solitary confinement under this partnership with Vera. So early on, the prison, these prisoners were saying the matrix made me do it. I think that they were just referring to the word that is used within the system for the for, or, or for, for, the, for the disciplinary process um, when they were saying that the matrix is at fault here. You know, really it appears to be that, that you know, things have continued to go the way that they were going before the matrix in spite of the matrix, not really because of it. Which would suggest yeah, right. that the issues are cultural really and then the whole, it's just so ingrained in, in the culture of the prison system here that it would require a lot more than than just new guidelines. Yeah, so I, I had a relatively long interview with, with the chief operating officer of, of the Department of Corrections, Seth Smith, which, and it was really interesting. And he, the Department of Corrections has argued that, that they, they really are committed to reducing the use of solitary confinement and that they have. Um, you know, the data, there are two studies that show that the, the use of solitary has, has um, declined pretty dramatically. Those measurements are specifically for people being held in their cells for over 22 hours a day for more than, than two weeks. Um, so there's some limits to, to what that shows, but they do, you know, they do claim that, they're, that they are really committed to this, but they also admit that it is a hard culture change that for so long in Louisiana prisons, uh, you know, wardens and correctional officers could put someone in solitary confinement for as long as they'd liked and leave them there and do these cursory reviews and getting buy-in from the prison staff and the prison system to, to implement these changes and, and to really stick to what the disciplinary sanctions dictate, I think has been difficult. And I'll say, you know, I think that that one one could argue that that's why it requires more you know more stringent oversight and having these having things like preventative segregation where you can basically just change the classification of someone and and then leave them in, in solitary confinement really gives 
Department of Corrections, you know, staff and, and people who maybe would prefer to keep doing it the old way, a way to do that. Right. Um, was the le- I mean, was the legislature in any way keeping an eye on this that you were aware? Not that I'm aware of. Um, I know there have been a number of, of bills to reduce the use of solitary confinement um, and specifically re- carve out certain conditions in which it can't be used. Um, I know maybe last year I believe they banned the use for, for pregnant women. Although I think even I think even in that case there's there's sort of kind of a carve out and get you know and less absolutely necessary. We should probably cut that because I can't, I'm, not, I'm not sure what the legislation actually says. The story has some really heartbreaking accounts. It's it's a it's um it's a tough read, but really another really great story. Um, let's really quickly review what happened last week. There was a, a big upset in the sheriff's race. Yes, a big upset. Susan Hudson defeated, defeated a 17-year incumbent Marlon Gustman for, to, to become sheriff. By a pretty good margin. Yeah, that was the thing. I, I mean, you know, it, it, I was thinking going in, if she wins this, it's going to be like she's barely going to squeak by. But it was, it was, uh, it was uh, what, what did it end up being, Nick? Like 50, I think six points. 46 think, or something I like that. I think 54-46. Yeah, so it was, uh, she, had, she had a decent margin. Uh, why do you think? Well, Charles was keeping a, a pretty close eye on, on the um, precinct by precinct uh, returns. I don't know if you if you want. Yeah, to I mean, it, it it looks it, so. A lot of my theory going into this election as to why I thought Gusman was going to win, other than just you know natural incumbent advantage, is that he was in the primary. His strongest precincts were in parts of the city that overall have tend to have a higher voter turnout for municipal elections um, and then 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 the cities where Hudson was performing strongest and I haven't I haven't done as much map work with the general as I did with the primary but you know what it seemed to me when I was following this on election night is that Hudson managed and, and you know part of this could be you know a function of, of, of an extremely low turnout you know our primary was low turnout our municipal was even lower turnout. You know, so when you get lower turnout, you get you get you can kind of get some some unexpected results. But she seemed to have performed a lot better um, in in what had been Gusman's strongest precincts, as well as getting ninety percent of the votes uh, in what had been her strongest. So so she got so she got more you know more voter loyalty in what had been her strongest precincts. Um, you know, I was looking at some of her strongest precincts in the primary were like Maroney, Bywater, Mid-City. She was winning in those precincts like 90 to 10. Yeah, and she, she, had, she had managed to get a, a decent lead, you know, in the, in the 50s or, or even low 60s in, in some of what had been the Gusman precincts. I mean, in, in the primary, he completely swept New Orleans East. He almost completely swept Algiers, um, and we did not see that same pattern in general. She did a lot stronger in a lot of those places. Well, well, thanks, guys. That'll do it for us for the holidays, right? We're, We're taking two weeks off the, the podcast, um, so we uh, so we will be back in the new year. Great work this year, y'all. Thank, thank you, you so much. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, thanks, Carolyn. Happy New Year. Happy Holidays. Yeah, happy holidays. Happy New Year. Bye, guys. Bye.
This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, education reporter Marta Jusen, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Crastel, and Lens editor Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news, plus opinions, at our website, thelensnola.org. Happy holidays.